I want to begin by sharing three stories, one from the past and two from the general present. Uh, one you might be familiar with, you might not, I'm not sure what your knowledge of Protestant missions is, but the other two you probably are unaware of. You might have heard, start with the one that's older, you might have heard of a man named William Carey. If you haven't heard of him, some missiologists have given him the title, the father of modern missions, kind of Protestant missions movement. He and others ministered in India in the 18th and 19th centuries and established some of the more well-known mission strategies that are still used today. Uh, language acquisition, Bible translation, demographic research, educational development. He did lots, and in fact, you can even find like old facsimiles of his work where he was trying to figure out how many people lived in certain countries and what languages they spoke and uh, what the religious population was of those areas. And we do much of that same work today, be it through Joshua Project or Operation World, like we just built upon what he was doing. Uh, in fact, uh, I previously served with an elder uh, at another church whose father got his Master's of Divinity from a seminary affiliated with a college William Carey started. So his ministry is enduring even into today. Um, but at the same time, if you ever study his life, you will find that his family struggled. And that's probably an understatement. Uh, he had to convince his first wife to come with him on the mission field, which she uh, was doggedly opposed to. She did not want to go. She eventually did come, but she hated being there. Uh, in the conditions in which they lived, they lost a son to dysentery, and his wife Dorothy herself had a mental breakdown and eventually died. Carrie remarried shortly thereafter to a woman named Charlotte, who, a woman whom he loved and ministered with for over a dozen years, but she too died and he remarried Grace. And when I've spoken with people about William Carey, I do this little course sometimes and we run through his thoughts with his first wife and I always ask the question like, well... What do you think he should have said? And it's always interesting to hear how like our popular uh, family first sentimentalities go toward like, well, he should have never gone. I'm like, well, you know, like the world's different because he did. Like literally, people who have never heard of Jesus have, and he started a whole new movement. So, you know, what do you do with that? And so it's always interesting when I kick around that, well, what would you do if you were in his shoes? Or what would you have said? Or how would you counsel? Or would you have made the same decision? And people have opinions on whether or not he should or shouldn't have, or how to lead your family, or what happens when there's disagreement, all of those things. But one thing that we do see for Carrie, or for Dorothy, or for their children, or uh, just for the fact that he was ministering in a place that didn't have ministers, that pursuing Christ in obedience is not easy. That, that pursuing Jesus to places that he's not been preached places where he is not known, that's not easy. And, and, and by not easy, you might go, well, you know, where, the safest place to be is where, where the Lord has you. I'm like, I, I understand that, but if we're just talking about ease or comfort or ability to live your life, right, well, dropping a family into conditions that you're unfamiliar with, into a world you're unfamiliar with, around people you're unfamiliar with, that is not an easy thing to do, though people continue to do it month after month after month for the cause of Christ. It's not easy. It isn't always comfortable, and it, it often brings pain with it. But we might be thinking, well, I'm not that. I'm not, I, I, I haven't done that. And if you're in this room, 
then you're currently not there right now. You're not ministering amongst the unreached. Uh, so if you're in this room, you go, well, that's not me. I, some, people, some people have that, but I'm certainly not one of them. So I'll say, it's not you yet. We don't know what the Lord might do with any of us and where he might take any of us. It isn't just the sent missionaries, though, who suffer and need comfort. Courtney and I have been invested in deeply over really decades by a family um, and in particular by, by the wife um, here, the, she's really the matriarch now. She's you know, both mother and grandmother and mentor and friend. And I haven't seen her for a couple of years, but when we got to chat in the airport a couple of years ago, and just like I was in town and she drove to the airport and we just sat and talked for an hour and a half. Uh, wonderful woman. And she would share with us her wisdom and she would grant us grace and she prays for our family. She probably prayed for our family far more than I would even be able to guess the amount of prayer that she's prayed for us and the concern that she's had for us. And she's also taken seriously the, the biblical command to honor her parents, even as a grandmother, to honor her mother. And so she would, with her mother, go from where she was living and go spend time with her mom to be sure that her needs were attended to and that she could be taken care of. And you look at that and you go, what an example, right? You should have people taking care of you, but then there you are taking care of your own, your own mother even though our mother lived states away. So I believe it was in the fall of 2015, while in another state caring for her mother, as the Lord would have her, this woman's husband died at home. And it was one of those moments where you, you know, like normal phone calls that you would expect your spouse to answer aren't being answered, and you're starting to get more concerned because you can't find them, you can't track them down. And so while tending to the needs of mom in another state, you lose your husband, and you're widowed. Suddenly, quickly, we were all shocked by it. And she was never able to have those moments that many of us long to have, which is like closure, goodbyes. And I remember even at the funeral, being more, you're in the line, the kind of the receiving line, you want to you know, give your condolences, to be more ministered to by her than I could ever offer back. Like she was just so steady and confident and trusting in what God was doing in those moments. Because following Jesus doesn't remove our suffering and our pain. He doesn't get rid of it. it. does change it, though. Third story. I know of a pastor who took the pastorate after another beloved pastor, right? Like, so it's always dangerous, right, to be the guy after the guy, and so it was the guy after the guy, and uh, many people loved the guy, and he was still around. And It wasn't long after he had shown up and was pastoring that people didn't like him. You've probably never seen that, but if you haven't ever seen that, it can happen from time to time where you're not like the old guy, and so you just, you know, people go, well, I'm not really sure, and people start... They say, oh, that's the time people get the most curious about the way the bylaws are written, right? Well, how do we have to have a congregational meeting? And how many people have to be there? And do they have to be members or do they just have to be present? And all of these things, you go, well, how can we, you know, vote this guy out or whatever it might be? And so at, shortly after the beginning of a pastorate, the congregation, some of them, after your brief honeymoon period, the congregation wanted to try and find a way to remove the person who had recently gotten there. 
Now, if I were in his position, I might have just thrown in the towel and said, this isn't worth it. Isn't worth it. You know, why be in a place you're not wanted? It was always my advice, like, why be in a place you're not wanted? It doesn't sound any fun. But this man didn't do that. He had resolve. He stayed. He labored through it. And his laboring through it and his conviction to the church to which he was called mattered for that church. And it mattered for its history and for its legacy. Now, whether you are a missionary or a faithful daughter who is also a wife and a mother and a grandmother, if that's you, or a pastor, the path of obedience to Christ isn't easy. It often comes with pain. It isn't even what the world might call fun, right? That's a big thing for us. This isn't fun. This is boring. I wish it, weren't, I wish it were more fun. How can it be more fun? Watching the World Series games has not been fun. But at the same time, you might be looking at that and going, that doesn't sound that fun. At the same time, it's good. And it's good because of what God bears in us through it, what it produces. So what should the church offer? What should the church offer to those who have experienced pain and suffering for the cause of Christ? As Derek shared last week, he talks about how being in community is not comfortable. Right? That's been our series for the past, I think this is week eight. It's been our series for the past eight weeks, including today, is, is how do we handle life together as a church? This is hard for us. It's hard for us for lots of reasons, and most of those reasons begin with me. And if you were saying the same sentence, you would say it too. They begin with you. Right? Like, like that, that's the reason these things become difficult, because sin affects how we relate to one another. Our flesh gets in the way and wants to ruin it. We, we are scared about being vulnerable. When people get to know us, we might get burned. All these things begin to show up. And being together and trying to live in obedience to Jesus together can be quite uncomfortable because people begin to know us. And they know our weaknesses and they know our struggles and they know how our marriage is going and they know how our kids are. And you go, oh gosh, could you just be, kids, could you just be well behaved while we're at church? Because the church may judge me if not, right? Could you just be kind in that moment? That's all I need. And you can be as crazy as you want once we get out of this place, but just put it together for 75 to 90 minutes, and we'll be fine. I'll give you $5. My kids are probably in it now. Like, what? <laughs> Five bucks, I'm in. And yet, at the same time, I want to share, as uncomfortable as it can be, I want to share about the comfort that we can have. We're actually in this kind of three-Sunday portion where we're going to share about the issues of church life that are hard for us. And issue number one is how to be vulnerable. That's what Derek shared. And issue number two is then how to suffer. And then issue number three will be our generosity, which Zach McGoy will share next week. To speak about suffering, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is the second letter we have of the Apostle Paul, a man who was persecuting the church in the book of Acts, but then was converted by Jesus and placed his faith in Jesus and became a warrior for Christ. 2 Corinthians is the second letter we have, but it could have been as much as the fourth letter that the apostle had written to the Corinthian church, depending on how you kind of look at how he's writing and what he said. So we likely have maybe, like our letter 1 Corinthians is likely the second letter that the apostle Paul wrote, and 
2 Corinthians could likely be the fourth letter that he wrote, depending on how you kind of reconstruct it. So when I say 2 Corinthians is not a second letter, it's the second letter that God has preserved for us to have, not necessarily the second letter that we have. We won't know for sure as you reconstruct because you don't have 1 and 3 Corinthians or first and like whatever it might be, but we just know because Paul's going, well, in a previous letter I wrote about this, and it's not in 1 Corinthians, or not like you go, well, what was the previous letter? We're unsure. But what we do have are two letters written to a church that had its issues. I'm not going to say turn to 4 Corinthians because that would be weird, so turn to 2 Corinthians in your Bibles. The Corinthian church had questions about Paul as an apostle as he was receiving opposition from some people in the church, so Paul himself likely wrote this letter during his third missionary journey, kind of the mid-50s A.D., and he had suffered and experienced many hardships up to and through this time. Some we learn about even in this letter. But as we start, we learn about comfort. We learn about comfort. That's the word that is repeated in 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 11, numerous times. Comfort, 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 comfort. We're going to start in three ways. We'll look at the source of comfort, the reason for comfort, and the result of comfort. The source, the reason, and the result. We start with the source of comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be, or blessed be, because you know, we have to say blessed if we're reading the Bible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Paul, as in many letters, begins with praise, but he also highlights what God provides, mercy and comfort. Not only that, not only that, but as the verse continues, we see that the comfort comes in our affliction. Now, you might be wondering why this even matters. We, we aren't God, so the fact that he is a God of comfort and the source of comfort well, it might not really help me. I'm glad you're a God of comfort, but I need that comfort. But we might be forgetting something. Right? God the Father, Father of mercies, God of all comfort. He comforts us in our afflictions. Okay, great. But the reason, and he makes this connection in verse 5, the reason that God is the source of our comfort is because of the ministry of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. That Jesus suffered... And through Jesus' sufferings, we understand suffering. Paul even connects his suffering with Christ's suffering. Prophet Isaiah called Jesus a man of sorrows. But you look at verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now how do we share in... How do we share in Christ's suffering? Because if you're, not, if you're, if you're just kind of reading that, you go, well, well does that mean that, that, through, that I somehow add to Christ's sufferings? If his, if his suffering was for sin, then what, what benefit do I bring to his suffering? It doesn't seem like I would bring any. Right, so what am I sharing in? If I'm sharing in Christ's sufferings, his suffering was once and for all, through faith in him, I can be free from the power of sin. I can be forgiven for my sin. And so what in the world do I share in? 
Will you share in suffering just as Christ was persecuted, just as Christ suffered? Those who follow him suffer. He makes that clear. Right? If, you, if we belong to Jesus, then we suffer. We endure hardship. We endure persecution. And so we are sharing in, meaning we are participating in the same type of suffering, the same type of persecution that he himself received, though it's not for the sake of sins, but it's because of our identification with the Lord Jesus. As he pursues, as the Apostle Paul pursues Christ in obedience, it comes with hardship. As Christ pursued obedience to the Father, it came with suffering. We share in the same type of suffering because we are trying to obediently pursue our God. So God is the source of comfort. The God of mercy, Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. For as we are sharing abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share in his comfort too. Our association with him means that we too will suffer, but that we also will be comforted. And it's important as we begin to get the source of comfort right. Because you're probably like me, or maybe I'm like you, or we're like each other, however you want to put that. But we find or try and find comfort in so many other sources. We try and find relief in so many other ways. We might run to our screens to satisfy us. With, you know, not, not us with unveiled faces, it's us with screen glowing faces trying to just be happier about life. We might run to things of this world to pacify us. We might run to substances to numb us. We're trying to find comfort in the wrong places. We're trying to find satisfaction in the wrong places, forgetting that God is the source of the true and lasting comfort that we need. I might even say this, that if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't follow Jesus, you go, that thing's not for me, I'm not that concerned about it, I'm kind of here because I have to be, whatever that reason might be. The only way you will find lasting comfort from your sins is through faith in Christ. The only way that, that your sins will be removed the consequence of your sin, eternal punishment and separation from God will be removed is through Christ. We all need comfort one way or another. But we so often look to the wrong things to bring it. To the wrong spaces, to the wrong places, to the wrong sources, forgetting that it is God. And if we are running to the wrong places, then all the while we are missing God where true and lasting comfort comes for us as we live life in this world. Now, he gives the reason, and the reason you go, well, hold on, why are you talking about verse 4 and then verse 5, right? Like, it's because Paul's talking about comfort, the source of comfort, the reason, and the result. All of those things kind of all happen in the paragraph back and forth. He's kind of moving back and forth through these ideas, so I'm kind of trying to put these ideas in an order for us so we can follow along what's going on. Why in the world do we need comfort, though? That's a good question. I'm glad God's the source. Why do we need it? Well... It's interesting, and I'm not sure even what to do with this, but, but sometimes I'll ask, maybe you've done this to me, maybe I've done this for you, I don't know, but sometimes I'll ask people how I can pray for them. How can I pray for you? What's going on? What do you need prayer for? And I'll get some kind of answer like this. Well, you know, we're pretty good right now. 
I'm pretty good. I mean, things are going pretty well right now. I mean, life's good, family's good, job's good. Things are good. I don't know. Just pray that we, you know, continue to honor God with what we're doing or anything like that. And I'm just like, well, okay, I'd be, I'd be glad to. But I think that betrays some of actually how we might view this life because if the response to how can I pray for you is, I'm not really sure, things seem pretty good right now. Well, that kind of misses just how dependent we are on God to get through even this morning, right? I get concerned because I go, well, how do we pray without ceasing if we don't think we need prayer or if we don't think there are things to pray for? How do we actually pray without ceasing if we're not thinking that prayer is so necessary and that really life's good right now, so I'm fine, right? Like those are dangerous times for me because we might realize or think that we're fine without God and we are not fine without God So how do we find comfort in a world where it perhaps is saturated by worldly comforts? Even for the Christian, this is the scary part. Even for the Christian, we go, no, I'm good. Like, I'm good for a while. Things are fine. Can pay my bills. Can pay them for a while. Don't have to worry about life. Like, we're good. We're good. Man, that's a dangerous phrase for me. And so all of us need comfort, but we might not actually be just either living life with other brothers and sisters so we realize that we do need it, or we're deceived to think that we really are good when we're not. And then there's this whole other part of following Jesus, which is suffering. In this passage, you might read it as affliction. So let's look at verses 4 and 5 again. The God of comfort, praise God, who, verse 4, comforts us in all our affliction, all of it, not just part of it, not just in the really bad ones, but in all of them, so that we may be a comfort or be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So Jesus suffers, as we've seen, and we share in his sufferings. That is to say, the Christian suffers because of her connection to Jesus, because of his connection to Jesus. We suffer because we belong to him. Now to the students in the room, and the adults too, but I'll talk to the students in the room. Many of us want so desperately to fit in, especially as you're young. You really want to fit in. And I don't just mean like go along with everything all the time, but you want to be liked. I don't know many people who are like, I don't want to be liked. I want to be hated. Like, I just don't know that person. Maybe you're in the room, and so like I will give you an award later. But we want to be liked. We want to be liked. And especially as you're younger and you're trying to figure out who in the world you are. And your life changes and your friendships change and just, you know, there's drama all the time. Like, like as that is happening, it feels dangerous to try and take a stand for Christ sometimes. Right? So let's say you're with your friends and your friends start to laugh at someone. That never happens, but let's just say it did. They just start to laugh something. They're making fun of her. They're making fun of him. And in that moment, you kind of feel that tension, don't you? Of Well, I could join in because I like these people and I want, to, I want to be on the in crowd. Or what? You resist. You go, I'm not sure that's how we should be talking. I heard it this said, this said about football locker rooms. I was never in one, so I'm not sure if it's true. Will, you can help me out with that. But the phrase was, if you grin, you're in. 
Meaning if you, if, you, if you show some kind of identification with the mockery that's going on or the joking that's going on, then you're identifying with going along with it. If you grin, you're in. And this was said by like a believer who was trying to represent Christ in his locker room. That, that, that to have a witness, to have that presence, to, to be able to identify with the Lord and not with the world in those moments can be kind of difficult. And so he just goes, no, if you grin, you're in. It's kind of the way he did it as a guy who grew up in locker rooms. So you're either in or you stand up for the person who might be being ridiculed, which doesn't seem like that big of a cost, but it can be, can't it? Especially, again, like to the students in the room, you go, man, to take a stand for somebody who we're all kind of making fun of together? Well, then I, then I, then I come across as like the Jesus freak or super noble or the person who, you know, I'm no fun at the party and no one's going to invite me to things. I don't want to be that person. And your friends start to go, you know, they start to get mad at you. And they're like, we didn't mean anything by it. We're just having fun. Why do you even care? But now you can't be trusted, right? Because you're like a narc. But you're really not. What are you doing? You're taking up the defense of someone. You're standing up for somebody. But the consequences of that, even in the life of a student, can be significant. To say, we're not going to go there. We're not going to talk about that. And when you're 11, 12, 13, 14, and you're trying, to, you're trying to take a stand for the Lord, you're trying to grow in him, ooh, man, I tell you what, those students can be the worst. It hurts. But standing for those who have been wronged is more important, isn't it? Why? Because that's what the Lord does. And so you're identifying with him, and you're being mocked for it, and in a sense, you're participating in that same kind of ridicule for the cause of Christ. The cost is, of course, worth it, but, right, we still got to go, wow, that's, that stings. Now, we could also consider the example that came earlier, uh, William Carey, the, or the widowed disciple, or the pastor that the church members didn't care for, or some of the church members didn't care for, or didn't want. Consider, too, those who lose their lives for the cause of Jesus, who are mocked, ridiculed, and die. Because they believe in a man who rose from the dead and gives people life. This is what Paul was giving his life for after his conversion. And he was being mocked and stoned and beaten and lashed and laughed at, run out of town and left for dead. Consider how this Apostle Paul speaks of his own afflictions to the Corinthians. Verse 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Not sure exactly which afflictions these might be. You could find a list. But he's experienced lots. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death. Well, that doesn't sound very happy. I mean, you're listening to this man who was changed by Christ. And in fact, even in his conversion narrative, there's this phrase where he goes, I must show him how much he must suffer for my name. It's actually said about this man. I must show him how much he will suffer for my name. And you don't have to go far in the book of Acts to see these things. And not just losing sleep, not losing, you know, skin, losing friends, being left for dead. Later in the book of Acts, we find him shipwrecked. 
Snake bitten, that was a cool one. Yelled at and mocked, beaten and rejected. Imprisoned and left there. For the Christian pursuing Jesus in the path of obedience, wanting to make disciples of all nations, longing to see his glory in this world, longing to live your family life in accordance with the scriptures and to pursue your career and your parenting in a way that honors God. And to have that even matter when you're at the grocery store. And to have that matter when you're at a red light. And to have that matter when you're talking with your friends at a ball game or when you're watching something or when you're going trick-or-treating. To have it matter, to represent Jesus, it still comes with affliction. And do you hear, do you hear Paul's tone? He's not, this is some of us, like, hooray for pain! That's not his tone in 2 Corinthians 1, is it? What's he say? We despaired of life itself. We felt that we received the sentence of death. He doesn't speak about his suffering in these like glowing terms of like, and you should get it too. Like, it's great, right? Like, sign up now. Like, it's not the point. He is not angry with the Lord that he has experienced what he's experienced. In fact, he'll praise the Lord for it and explain why it even showed up. He talks about how painful it is. And I want to say this to you. There's no reason to protect yourself from the suffering that comes from following Christ. You don't have to hide it. Right? When you're in community group and you're sharing about needs or requests and there's things going on. And you can say, my life is not going the way that I had anticipated. Or my job is not going the way that I have anticipated. Or just like just standing for the Lord. This is, this is more difficult than I thought it would be. Pursuing righteousness or justice, being merciful. This is not, this is not resulting in the life that I thought it would. And I still think that there is sometimes this lie we believe that if we just follow Jesus, life gets better for us. In this like short term, like everything gets better. I get more money. You know, the job that I wanted to have finally shows up. All these things just happen in my life, and it's all great. Like, that's, not, that's not promised. In fact, suffering's more promised than that. <laughs> Pain is more promised, and like everything's going to go great, and you have the winning lottery ticket the next day. Like, that's not promised. But sometimes we just still, in our, in our minds, in, in what the world does, we associate following Jesus with just like worldly wealth and pleasures and all these other things. But a a thorough reading of the scriptures remind us that that's actually not a Christian view of obedience. At all. At all. It is not to go, yay, I love suffering, it's the best. You can actually say, with all you have, I thought I was going to die. That last Tuesday was the worst day of my life. You can say that. But you can still praise God because you know what he's working, you know what he's bearing, you know what he's doing. The only thing that you can do in those moments where you feel as if you have received the sentence of death is to trust in God as your comforter. But God has an interesting way of, I could say, dispensing that comfort. 
because it is not just in a moment of difficulty me thinking really hard about how Jesus experienced the same thing. That's actually not what the passage is telling me. It doesn't say, oh, Jesus said it so you're good. Just go along with your life. No. No. And, and, and we also see this, that the, the, the source of our comfort being God, and the reason we're comforting is because we suffer, the result of comforting isn't that we feel better. It isn't that we feel better, which I would think like, hey, I have pain, but God's a God of comfort, so I'm good. I want to now feel better. But that's not where Paul takes this line of thinking. In fact, what the actual results of me experiencing pain and being comforted by God are, is that I am now able to be a comfort to others. Well, that's different. Not, it's not just, hey, I feel better now I can live my life. It's now, because I know what God has done for me and I have comfort from him, I can now be a comfort for others. Verses 6 and 7. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. It's, it's uncomfortable to even think that being Comfortable isn't the end game of my suffering. Like being relieved of it. That's not the end game here in this life, but that I can actually now be a comfort for others. That's why the recently widowed mentor can be more of a minister to me in a moment of her grief than I can ever be to her. As much as I might try, she was able to provide something in that moment to everybody who came through that was far different than what I could give. Because what do I get? Sorry for your loss. Sorry for your loss. Sorry for your loss. But there's something much richer to the one who knows the Lord and experiences something and in that moment can find the Lord's comfort and be that for others. I have a friend who is one of the most compassionate people I know. I would wish you could all meet him. One of the most compassionate, loving, bear with you in whatever situation people that I know in the world. Um, I'm not sure there's an end to his patience. If there is, he hides it very well. I'm sure you have people in your life like that. The people that when something goes wrong, you run to them, they're the best people to go to. Parent, pastor, mentor, friend, church, family, community group member, that person that you run to when things aren't working right because you know what the Lord does through them and how the Lord ministers through them. They will just be there for you. They don't have an agenda. They don't always have to talk. They enjoy your company. In silence and at parties, they're always an encouragement. They're always a comfort. Well, for my friend... One of the reasons that he is able to be that is because he and his wife have endured six to seven lost pregnancies. They have zero children. And that's not to say, yay, miscarriage, in the least. Because that is a pain. To lose a child at 37 weeks, or 27 weeks, or 17 weeks, or seven weeks. 
time after time, pain that comes with that, all the processing that goes on to go, you know, why me, God? Why did this happen? What's going on here? All of those things. And they've learned and they've, through suffering, learned more about the love of God, the presence of God, and the comfort of God than I could teach them, than you could teach them, because they've had to endure it. But what also has happened in that moment is that they are now, by God's grace, two of the kindest, most compassionate, loving, generous people that you could meet. And if you say, hey, we could, you know, would you trade that feeling for, you know, six or seven children? I'm sure they would want their children. Absolutely. But to also be able to see what in this fallen world God can produce from moments that seem hopeless. From moments that seem hopeless. That are draining and exhausting. Where they could go, I feel like I've experienced the death penalty. Like, that's what I've been given. Life for us always ends in death. And it hurts. And yet at the same time, that pain provides an ability to minister to others that cannot be manufactured by classes, by just conversation, by just thinking really hard about it. And that's hard for us. But in that pain, we learn not to be dependent on our own power, which can make us feel really confident about ourselves, but to depend upon God's power more than our own. So go back, verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I feel like I've received a sentence of death, but it is so that I don't depend on myself, but on God. When life feels hopeless, when you have nothing, when things aren't working right, when everything, you're pursuing Christ in obedience, and everything is not coming up roses. It's coming up crooked. We learn in that that I cannot depend on my own power. All of you have just a certain capacity, and then it'll break. You're done. You have no more strength. You have no more willpower. You have no more wishful thinking. You have no more kindness in you. But if you depend on God who raises the dead, then out of that person overflows life that cannot be explained by simply thinking about cool ideas and life hacks to endure painful moments. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril. There's a confidence that Paul has in God that he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope. He will deliver us again. So there's recognizing the need to depend on God, the confidence that God will deliver. And then again, the community aspect of this. You also must help us by prayer so that Many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now, I used to, this is maybe five, ten years ago, 
when missionaries would say, you'd get the support letter, and they'd say, honestly, the best thing that you can provide for us are your prayers, right? The, yeah, that is like the, the, the best gift, praying for us. I would always look at that and be like, do you mean money? It's always how I thought about it, right? Because I'm pretty pragmatic. I'm like, do you mean money? Because I, like, what if I could just give you $1,000? Would that help? And it, it took living longer to realize they meant it. Realize they meant it. Why? Because in those places where they're out and they want people to come to know the Lord and there might not be a church around or a Christian around, but for those people, then they know that this is not just some kind of endeavor that you can manufacture. The most significant need they have is for God to move in the hearts of people so that he might be known, worshipped, and glorified by those who have not heard the name of Jesus before. And so when I hear that now, your prayers are so sweet. The most significant thing that you can do for us is pray for us. Now I know they mean it. But you see that reflected right here. You also must help us by prayer. At this point, Paul and the Corinthians were not together. And so especially at that distance, what, what can I be for you? What can I do for you? And this is what happens sometimes when people are like in hospitals and they go, well, let me know if you need anything, right? Like it's always the phrase that we do. It's like we don't know what else to say. So we just go, well, let me know if you need anything. I'm like, well, their you know, child's about to die. I'm, I'm not sure that they can tell you what they need right now. I'm not sure that there's a long list Right? They have cancer. If you need anything, they need their child to be healed. They need to understand what's going on. They need, they, need, they need the Lord. I don't know what else they would need in that moment. Now I know sometimes we're like, we just don't know what to say. But what if you said, can I, pray? Can I please pray for you right now? Can I pray for you right now that, 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 that you might endure, that we might endure, that we can be for you what is needed in these moments? Right? That's the, that's the, that's the craziest thing to think about, right? That, that our pain shifts our attention from our weakness to God's power, that God who raises the dead can deliver us either now or in eternity when we are with him, and that the church, other believers, work together to aid and be a comfort to those who are suffering. I feel like sometimes we've bought into a lie that we're not counselors, we're not sharp enough, we don't know enough Bible, so that when we see a, a brother or sister in our church family who is hurting, we don't know what to do. We, 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 don't, know, we don't know how to, how to be there for them. We, we don't know how to care for them. We go, well, I, haven't, I haven't experienced that. I, I haven't walked through that. They, they know the Lord way better than I do. They're closer to the Lord than I am. I, what, do we, what do you expect from me? But what we see in this passage, which is, is it, it's, it's this beautiful commingling of God being our comforter in our affliction so that we can comfort. We can comfort in our prayers. We can comfort in our presence. We can comfort in our words. Comfort because of the experiences that God has brought us through. So I would say this, don't demean 
or belittle the sufferings that you too have experienced. In fact, you might not realize that those experiences allow you in unique moments to be a minister to somebody else in this room. You can be that for somebody. This is, the, this is the beautiful thing, right? It's, it's like the same, the same thing that we think where we go, well, hold on, doesn't just God, uh, doesn't, why, why couldn't God just announce from the heaven that Jesus is real and everybody should believe him? Right? Like, why doesn't he just do that? You ever had that thought about evangelism? Like, why does he use us? It would work way better if he just did it. Right? Don't you have the same question here? Why does he use us for this? Like, why me to be a comfort to you? Why my suffering helping you in your suffering? Why the comfort I've received from God in a difficult moment then becomes comfort that you've received from God through me? Why that? And my answer is because he knows what's best. He knows what's best to bring about his end. He knows what's best to form us into the image of Christ. He knows what's best to make a Genesis community church that reflects him gloriously because of the way that they suffer and the way that they comfort. Suffering is inevitable, so we don't need to hide from it. Suffering brings comfort from God, so I would encourage you to experience it. (laughs) Suffering also produces a better discipleship because we are able to bear with one another and be with one another and pray for one another and care for one another. In Genesis, I don't know what will, will come our way. I don't know what will come our way tomorrow or the next day or the, I don't know. You don't know. We don't know. We cannot predict what God might bring our way as a church family. And that's okay. But what I would say is I would anticipate that it includes suffering. It includes suffering because we want to reflect our Lord. We want to walk with our Lord. We want to stand for our Lord. We want to proclaim our Lord. And it doesn't come without then opposition and pain. And walking life in obedience even here, it, doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't mean easy. But it does mean, in the long term, good. So in those moments, we should let God meet us, comfort us, and send us out so that we can be a comfort for others. I would encourage you even to ask yourself this question right now. What, what has happened in my life that would allow for me opportunities to go sit beside a brother or sister and be with them? What have I gone through? Where has God met me that I could go with somebody else and be with them in those moments of difficulty, pray for them, encourage them, strengthen them in whatever ways God may allow for me? Because we're always waiting for somebody to come over to our side, right? Somebody come over here. Somebody come help me. Somebody come comfort me. But that's not the language that we have here, right? If I'm comforted, it's for your comfort. If I'm afflicted, it's for your comfort. If I go through this, it's for you. If I go through, like, it's always for you, for you, for you. And so the Christian life should be, it's for you. Hard for us to do. But a church that endures well in pain and knows the God of hope and comfort is a church that displays an otherworldliness that those around us are desperate to see because it's rooted in the work of a Savior 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, walked through it so that we might have life. We could be that for others, be an encouragement for others, a comfort for others, pointing them to Jesus. So let us pray that that might be true for us.